Good morning. How are we doing? Yeah, Happy New Year. I uh, hope your uh, your slides kicked off better than ours this morning. We uh, were mid worship in a in a song, and the Apple TV just decided to turn on, and TV did his own thing, and all of a sudden there's this weird Apple uh, animation of a horse and various backgrounds of nature just popping up while we're trying to worship. So it was fun, but we got it worked out, and it was it it went well. Um, so Happy New Year. My name is Craig Hatch. Uh, I am excited and honored to be here with you to kick off the new year, gather together to worship as a church. Uh, if you're new here, and uh, or maybe you've been coming here for, say, the past, I don't know, six months? Is that right? No. How long? July was the last time I was here. Um, and you don't know me, and we haven't had a chance to meet. Let me just give you a very brief background who I am, my family. Uh, it probably all started back in January of 1984 when my parents met. I'm just, I'm just kidding. Um, uh, my wife Maddie and I started going to Grace three and a half years ago. I now serve on staff in Alito, uh, leading our family discipleship, and Maddie leads our, uh, the Grace kids there. And we have three boys. Uh, Charlie is two and a half, and then Samuel and Thomas are nine-month-old uh, twin boys. Uh, so if you're if you're any good at math, you can put together that this past year has been uh, a difficult one and one of survival. So we are praying and hopeful that 2023 brings forth a little bit more rest than this past year. Um, regardless of whether you made New Year's resolutions or not, I imagine that you have maxed out your commitments and things that you are devoted to this year. Your job needs your full attention while also trying to be fully present at home, while also juggling the various activities of your kids, whether that's coaching their sports teams or taking them to dance lessons or trying to be more involved in their classroom. You've got to devote your time to your current friends while also trying to make new friends. You've got to be committed to the church and serve in the various ways that you serve and probably start serving in new ways because they're needed. There's a lot that we are committed to, and then on top of all that, you're trying to add New Year's resolutions. This is the exhausting life that we attempt to lead. We are overcommitted, overdevoted, and our attention, time, and hearts are divided among countless things. This only leads to exhaustion and fatigue because your devotion and your affection are not meant to be divided. Our text this morning will show us another devotion, one that is simple and refreshing because it pulls us back to the one devotion we were created for. Of all of your resolutions and responsibilities and commitments this year, this one devotion should be at the heart of them all. So our text this morning comes from Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 9. Deuteronomy was written by Moses and is widely considered as the the constitution for the nation of Israel. And our text contains the centerpiece of that constitution. If you look at the first word with me, it says, listen. Listen, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. 
This passage begins with the word listen, or in some translation it's hear, which in Hebrew is translated as shema. And if you've heard this passage preached, or maybe you're familiar with this passage, you, you probably heard the word Shema before, but it literally means hear or listen. For the nation of Israel, the Shema was the crowning statement, the central truth and the greatest command in the law. It is known simply as Shema or hear because of all the words in the law, this was what they were to hear over and over again and remember. Even for us as the church, the Shema is affirmed by Jesus Christ as the great commandment. What's interesting about the Shema is that it's difficult to translate because it doesn't contain a verb. It literally reads, Yahweh our God, Yahweh one. This reveals that there is one God and he is the only God. One commentator wrote that when he spoke, there was no other to contradict. When he promised, there was no other to revoke that promise. When he warned, there was no other to provide refuge from that warning. He is unique in that there are no other gods to contradict or challenge him. He is omnipotent in all things. And this God who stands alone as God has chosen to be the God of Israel. And if you continue reading throughout Deuteronomy, you see this exclusive choosing of Israel and the redeeming love of the Father, which is most clearly seen in the next chapter in Deuteronomy 7. It reads, For you are a holy people belonging to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be his own possession out of all the peoples on the face of the earth. The Lord had his heart set on you and chose you, not because you were more numerous than all peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples, but because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors. He brought you out with a strong hand and redeemed you from the place of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps his gracious covenant loyalty for a thousand generations with those who love him and keep his commands. This is the God that is God alone. This is God of Israel. He is omnipotent, powerful, and almighty, but that's not necessarily how Moses identifies him here. How does he identify him? He says he is the faithful God, the gracious God, the loyal God, and he is the only God, and he alone is love. The loving Father chose his people, and what is the response of such a love? Well, the response is the only response possible when confronted with something so lovely. When something is lovely by its very nature, you cannot help but love it in return. However, God is not just something lovely. He is the most lovely thing. He is the source of all things lovely. So what is the response to the most lovely God? Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength. The response is a complete devotion, an unadulterated allegiance, and unrivaled loyalty to the God that chose them, redeemed them, and loves them. 
Israel is commanded to respond with the same love that is being shown them. They are to love the Lord their God because he first loved them. We do not serve a God who demands our mustered up or coerced or unaffectionate love. He first demonstrates his faithful and sacrificial love. Then we, in response, love because of that. He does this because it is who he is by his very nature. He is Father, he is love, and he is worthy of all of our love. And the response of love must mirror the reception of love. The Father's love is not divided, disloyal, distracted, or half-hearted. The Father's love is perfect and holy and faithful for a thousand generations. Such a devoted love can only be met with such a devoted response. In Hebrew understanding, the heart was the seat of the mind and will. It's an internal devotion of affection and what you think in your mind, what you believe in your heart, and what you desire in your will. He doesn't just stop there, though. He says to love God with all of your soul. And the word soul here entails our entire personhood or being. So not only your heart, mind, and will, but also your entire existence is to love God. He doesn't end there, though. He goes on to love God with all of your strength. And for the Hebrew reader, the word strength here meant your possessions or your resources. So not only your existence, but everything you own, have, and do is for the purpose of loving God. And to be clear, we aren't commanded to love God to such an extent because he needs our love. We're commanded to love to such an extent because that is the extent to which the Father loves us. Now let's just stop and self-evaluate for a second. Is your love for God like this? Does your whole heart, mind, will, being, and doing love God? Is your heart consumed with love for God? I'd imagine that, that most of us would answer with probably not, sometimes it is. But regardless of what your answer is, why, why do you think that uh, our hearts is so half-hearted? Why is it so distracted and divided in our love for him? Well, the, the obvious answer is our sin, but I think this passage, uh, Moses helps us see two specific ditches that we naturally gravitate towards. He says, these words that I'm giving you today are to be in your heart. So I think the two problems that arise in our ability to love God with complete devotion are on one end of the spectrum, you've got legalism, and on the other end of the spectrum, you've got nominalism. These are the two ditches that we are naturally bent toward because of our sin. With legalism, you've got affection, or you've got action without affection. It is obeying the commands upon stone without having them upon your heart. We can slip into legalism when our heart is removed from obedience and we're just checking off the box of loving God. Moses is telling them it's not enough to just know these words and be able to recite these words, but they must be upon your heart and drive your affections for God. So you cannot truly love with just mere knowledge of God, but you cannot also truly love without knowledge of God. 
The second ditch that I think is more prominent and subtle is nominalism. This is love for God without knowledge of him. You say you love God, but you don't really know much about him, so you tend to forget him. Your life is not one of obedience to his commands because his commands are not upon your heart either. You may claim love for God, but your love is devoted to everything else. If you take a look at what you prioritize the most and spend the most of your time and energy on, you're probably gonna see what your greatest love is that rivals your love for God. It might be that you make all the time in the world and schedule everything around Saturdays so you can watch college football. This would be me. Or on Sundays to watch the, the Cowboys game. This would be probably Lucas, maybe. Uh, thanks. I just added that on the fly because I saw you. So, uh, or maybe you spend uh, countless hours at work because your greatest love is actually the security of money or the approval you get from success. If it's college football or uh, the Cowboys, maybe it's the, the greatest love is the comfort of entertainment. Or maybe it's, uh, you, you, you prioritize everything around your kids because your greatest love is actually the approval you get from their success or your parenting. Regardless of what you spend your time, what you spend your heart, soul, and mind toward, regardless of what your greatest love is, love that is divided is not the true response to the undivided love of God. Whether you fall into the ditch of legalism or of nominalism, the point is that we need to remember the great command. It must be upon our heart. So it begins with the heart, but it does not end there. If the love of God is by nature outgoing and overflowing, it wants to be shared with others. If you take a look at verse five again, the command to love begins internally with our hearts. It then moves outward to our soul, our whole personhood, our existence. From the soul, it again moves outward to our strength, our resources and possessions, but it doesn't even end with strength. It moves outward into our family. Read with me in verse seven. Repeat them to your children. Talk about them when you sit in your house and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Bind them as a sign on your hand and let them be a symbol on your forehead. Write them on the doorposts of your house and on your city gates. Our responsive love doesn't end with our strength, but it moves toward our children, our home, and then our city. This is the love of God. It is by nature unending and unceasingly moving towards others. You can even see this in the New Testament when Jesus uh, is asked about the Shema in Mark 12. Jesus quotes the Shema as the greatest command in scripture, but then he adds the second greatest command, loving your neighbor. Why do you think he adds this? Because the love of God is an outgoing and overflowing love for others. This is the gospel. The love of God is so overflowing that he created us to share his love. He sacrificed himself for us to share his love. He redeemed us to share his love. He then adopted us to share his love. If you've been around for a bit, you know that when we walk through 1 John, you see the Father's love for us. 
And now going through Ephesians, we see Paul's prayer for us in chapter three that we would be able to comprehend the length and width and height and depth of God's love and to know Christ's love surpasses knowledge. The love of God is overflowing for you and is naturally meant to be shared with others. If your love of God is kept inside without overflowing, then something must be off. On a much uh, smaller scale, I think a a helpful example is my mom's love for her grandchildren. I'll send her a picture of our boys, and uh, within minutes, I'm assuming, um, sometimes literally within minutes, all of my cousins and aunts and uncles and siblings' phones are blowing up with the same pictures because when she gets it, she sees it and she thinks, oh, everyone has to see this. When she sees something lovely, there's not a bone in her body that wants to keep it hidden. That's why Jesus says loving your neighbor is the second most important command because the love of God must move outward to both neighbors and to nations. Making disciples and loving your neighbor both derive out of a devoted heart madly in love with the Father. And that's one of the reasons why Moses tells Israel to repeat it to your children. Talk about it at all times. Discuss loving the Lord while hanging out in the house, while going on walks, while driving to school, at bedtime and in the morning at the breakfast table, repeating the central command to love God was so important it was to infiltrate and influence every sphere of life. Not only was it to be constantly repeated and discussed, but it was to be a constant reminder through physical signs as well. Bind it on your hand, put a symbol on your forehead, write it on your doorpost and city gate, loving God with your whole heart, soul and strength must never ever be forgotten. Unfortunately, our concept of the commands of scripture can often be like responding to an authority figure, like responding to the command of your boss at work, or responding to the principal at school, or like a soldier responding to the command of his general. However, the response to the command of the loving father is that of a husband to a loving wife a child to his loving mother or father. It is relational and familial. I think this specific command is less about submitting to an authority figure and more about falling in love with who God is. If you think about that for a moment, if it's falling in love with God, how do you, how do you fall in love with God? I'd argue that it's the same way that anyone falls in love. You meet someone that you find lovely. You begin to spend more time with them and you get to know them. The more dates you go on, the more time spent together, the more that you find them lovely. When I met Maddie, the more I hung around her and spent time with her, the more her loveliness was proved to me and the more I fell in love with her. That's just how relationships work. And it's no different with the God who created relationships and designed them to work this way. If we meet God, who is the most lovely, and where all loveliness finds its source, and we begin to spend time with him and get to know him more and more, you're going to fall in love with him. The more that you read his word, the more that you pray to him and fellowship with his bride, the church, the more he will prove his loveliness 
to you. He does not hide his love. It is available to you. You just need to get to know him and spend time with him and see his loveliness for yourself because God is the most lovable being and knowing God leads to loving God. But if you aren't spending time with him, if you aren't getting to know him, then you will struggle to feel his love for you. It's the same reason why I don't always feel the love of my distant relatives. I know that they love me, but I rarely actually experience and feel their love for me because I rarely get to spend time with them. That's just how relationships work. You have to be present with the person in order to see and experience their love. So if you struggle to discipline yourself to read his word, to pray and sit in solitude and commune with him, to consistently come to gather and worship with the church, to spend time with other believers, if you struggle to spend time with God and his people in the same way I don't expect to feel the love of my distant relatives, you should never expect to experience the love of the Father without being with the Father. And when you begin to fall in love with the Father, your children are going to notice. Your kids will naturally love and worship what you love and worship. If you love the Cowboys, I can almost guarantee you, your kids probably love the Cowboys as well. One author wrote that we are natural evangelists for our greatest loves. But if there is no affection in God for your heart, then there probably won't be any affection for God in your child's heart either. You cannot get your children to love something that you yourself do not love. That's why Moses said it must be upon your heart prior to repeating it to your children. If I don't show evidence of my love for the Lord, but I want Charlie to love the Lord, then it is similar to, to me getting him to like the Baltimore Orioles. There's no evidence that I love the Baltimore Orioles, so why should Charlie love them? I never talk about them. I don't have any of their apparel. I don't know who plays for the team, who manages them. I don't even know what an Oriole is. I don't know anything about the city of Baltimore either. You would never believe that I love the Baltimore Orioles because I don't know them. But so often we want our kids to know and love God without us first knowing and loving God. If you want them to know and love God, the best thing you can do is to fall in love with him yourself by knowing him, spending time with him, communing with him, and experiencing his loveliness. At that point, his love will overflow into everything else. And as a side note, I, I don't love the Orioles, but I do love my Baylor Bears. Uh, and say come, Joel, thank you. Uh, I'm taking a hiatus to cheer for TCU currently because of their going national championship. Uh, okay. Go Orioles, that's right. Uh, all of that was to say, the side note of a side note, uh, was Charlie was doing Sikkims at nine months old, so clearly we are natural evangelists for our greatest loves. Uh, and the more you begin to fall in love with something, the more you sacrifice your time and devotion for it. The more you sacrifice your heart, soul, and strength to it. For example, uh, a few weeks ago, Trin and I took Charlie and Witten to the Alito State Championship game. 
I bought a new Alito Bearcats t-shirt for him and for me because we didn't have anything. Uh, we drove 40 minutes to Arlington, left Maddie and the babies at home. I spent money on the t-shirts. I spent money on the tickets. I spent money on gas. I spent money on parking. I spent the most money on snacks at the game. Uh, we give about half of our day to be there. I sacrificed money, time, and energy to be at that game. Why did I do that? No one told me I had to be there. No one commanded me to be there. I did it because we now live in Alito and we're beginning to love the town. I did it and I sacrificed my time and, and my devotion because of love. But the reality is, is that my love for Alito is nothing compared to the people who have been there much longer than I. Who the people that, that know people that live there, that know the town, who have spent way more time than we have, and they've sacrificed way more than we have. They probably went to every game on Friday nights. They spent more money than we did on tickets and apparel. They probably talked about the football games at work and at home and uh, at the restaurant that they were at with their friends. Their conversations were consumed with Alito football not because someone commanded them to, but simply because they love their town. When something is lovely and we spend time with it, we fall in love with it. And when we fall in love, we begin to devote our heart, soul, and strength to it. And it works the same way with this text. If you want to love God with your whole heart, soul, and strength, then begin to spend time with him and experience his loveliness. Moses understands something about us, though, that hinders it from being this simple. Do you know why Moses commanded Israel to repeat the command all the time? So that they would remember. All throughout Deuteronomy, you see Moses commanding Israel to remember and not forget God's commands. Deuteronomy 4.9 says, Only be on guard and diligently watch yourselves so that you don't forget the things your eyes have seen and so that they don't slip from your mind as long as you live. Teach them to your children and your grandchildren. Deuteronomy 4.23, Be careful not to forget the covenant of the Lord your God that he made with you. Deuteronomy 6.12, Be careful not to forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Phrases like these are repeated all throughout the book of Deuteronomy. Why? Because Satan's greatest tactic against us is to make us forget. Even in the garden, the serpent questioned Eve on what God really said. He was testing her memory. And Moses knows this as clearly the nation of Israel forgot God quickly and forgot him often. The point of commanding them to repeat the Shema so often is so that they would remember, and we are the same way. We're broken, sinful, and quick to forget, and that is why we need spiritual disciplines, to remember and remind ourselves how lovely God is. In order to fall in love with him, I've gotta spend time with him, but I'm not naturally going to do this. My heart is not naturally bent towards godliness, as J.R. Packer would say. Like Israel, 
I need to be on guard and diligently watch myself so that I don't forget the love of God. I need to schedule time each day to read his word. I need to build in moments throughout the day to pray. I need to begin writing my thoughts and journals, or thoughts and prayers in a journal and schedule meals with others in the church. I need to schedule time into my family's rhythm to read, pray, and sing together for family worship. I need to be disciplined to consistently gather with the church to worship. And through diligent disciplines like these, your own love for the Lord will grow and your kids will be exposed to his loveliness as well. And that's why we as a church believe that parents are the primary disciple makers of their children. God has instructed the parents to teach the Shema to their children because the home is the unique means of discipleship used by God to tell the next generation of his love. We use the village's framework of time, moments, and milestones because it is derived specifically from this text. If you look at the text again, time, which is the intentional time scheduled to read, pray, and sing together as a family, you see it right there when you talk about them as you sit in your home, when you lie down, or you rise up. It's why we recommend family worship at bedtime or at the breakfast table. You see moments, which is taking advantage of ordinary everyday opportunities to discuss gospel truths. You see it when you are walking along the road, as you are going along in life. Finally, in milestones is marking significant occasions of God's faithfulness in your family and celebrating it. They serve as signs of remembrance bound on your hand, a symbol on your forehead or written on your doorpost or city gate. They are signs to remember his faithfulness and his love for you and your family. Looking back on this command and seeing how Israel fared in their obedience to love God with complete devotion, we see that they failed over and over again and they loved everything else but God. But God continued his faithful love for them despite their disobedience. Despite their adultery to his love, he remained faithful to love them. His love is so deep that he provided a savior to redeem them, forgive them, and adopt them. And not only that, but provide salvation for anyone, both Jews and Gentiles, who would repeat, repent and believe in the name of Jesus Christ. Jesus was born, lived as a man, and died on a cross in order to pay the punishment for our divided and adulterous love. Our hearts naturally love the world and reject God, yet God sacrificed himself for us so that we could have a new heart. The Father sent his Son so that we could love him and share his love through the Spirit. Our pursuit of knowing and loving God with our whole heart, soul, and strength is only possible through the loving triune God. It is only possible by humbling yourself and admitting your need for his love and his grace and then believing and responding with faith and joy as to who he is and his love for you. And now we as the church have a new heart, 
a redeemed soul in the strength of the Spirit to walk in obedience to the great commandment, to truly love God with a devotion that he loves us. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for who you are. Thank you for this church. I thank you uh, for your word. Lord, that we can turn to it and be reminded often of your love for us. I thank you uh, that, that we can see in your word, in scripture, over and over and over again, your faithful love for us. That is how we are reminded, by turning to your word and seeing and reminding ourselves that you truly are faithful and that you truly do love us here today. I pray for this church, I pray for this people, Lord, that you would reveal yourself in new and deeper ways. Reveal your love to us, reveal your grace to us, reveal how faithful you truly are. I pray that we would grow in the, the discipline to be with you, to be present with you, to pursue you and spend time with you, and that we as a church would fall more and more in love with you, and that in that, we would be more humble and more joyful because of who you are. I pray that over this year, Lord, that we would love you in humility and in joy. And I pray this in the name above every name, in Jesus Christ, by the power of your spirit, amen.